You must get technical sometimes, is that correct? You must stretch your mind a little bit. And if we don't cover these things, they just keep happening in history all over again. If you would like to read an Amaraldian view uh, of the exposition of the text, then J.C. Ryle in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, and also John chapter 6. And if you believe in limited atonement after you read those, you'll probably never waver again because he lays it out almost convincingly, but not quite convincingly enough. All right, we have a time now for discussion. The first question I'll ask, and you can answer, and then any of you can ask questions, is the attempt to get away from the, what some people feel as the narrowness or the whatever of limited atonement. And when you take the Emeraldian view, it seems to me that every single objection you can label against limited atonement you can also label against unconditional election. So in the end, you've really not gotten away from anything. Am I right? Go ahead. Stand up here. Is that a question or a statement? Yeah. you agree with me? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think I agree with you. Do you all understand this question? That's your question, John. Yeah. Uh, John says that uh, limiting, uh, that, that uh, limited, going to the decrees of God and speaking against a limited atonement is, is uh, the equivalent of an Amaraldian position. Is that, is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. And I think that's right. See, I personally believe... In, in trying to get away from limited atonement and saying, okay, the atonement is universal, but election is limited. And God limits the benefits of the atonement by his electing grace, even though the atonement is universal and paid the price for all men. And it seems to me that to do that, in the end, every objection that you can label limited atonement with, you can also label election the idea of unfairness and everything else, so you really gain nothing, and, and it's really either or. It's either a limited atonement or it's a straightaway universal atonement. Amaraldians make a distinction between redemption and the atonement. They would say that all men are redeemed, but the atonement was not for all. Now, that's, that's complicated by how they... Uh, that's, I personally believe, as I began to say a moment ago, I don't think that... Uh, Amaraldus uh, was Calvinistic, but they said that he was because uh, that he just had a, a difference of views, being able to express it. Come on up here. Uh, also, as Dr. Johnson mentioned about propitiation, uh, Amaraldianism distinguishes between uh, propitiation and atonement. All of you probably know that Romans 5.11 is translated, the word there is translated atonement, but it is the word reconciliation. And in Christ, we actually have uh, more than an atonement, I believe. The Hebrew word there is generally meaning to cover, and we have more than that. We have more than a covering. We have a putting, a, a putting away. Okay. Uh, I was wondering, 
that since Ephesians 1, 4 says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, would that verse not prove the supralapsarian view of, of the, the election? And that's why I uh, tend to lean in that direction, one of the reasons. And also, one of the, one of the, second, the second question is, why has supralapsarianism been labeled by many to be hyper-Calvinism? Johnson, you might want to address that. I think a stronger passage is in Romans, where it says he chose them and they had not done good or evil. Uh, Chris, is your, is your question, uh, what's the, why is uh, supralapsarianism branded hyper-Calvinism? In my opinion, first of all, the, to the answer to the first question is that generally when men believe that folks have gone beyond Calvin, which is what Amaraldo said, they are charged as being hyper-Calvinist. You know, hyper is to go beyond. Some of you have children that are hyper, right? <laughs> and hypo is to go below, like a hypodermic needle. So if you go beyond Calvin or teach other than what Calvin is uh, teaching. Now, of course, in the theological sense, hyper-Calvinism has been associated with fatalism. That's uh, the case. There's a third sense, however, and many of you may or may not be aware of this. Depending on which circles you're in, I know that Dr. Johnson would be. If you hold to the, what we call the fifth point, in the South we call them Whiskey Baptists down there, they hold to the fifth. <laughs> but if you hold to the fifth point of security, in many circles you are deemed a Calvinist. You don't have to hold anything else, just if you hold to security, you're, you're deemed a Calvinist. If you go beyond that into limited atonement and the particular redemption, you hold it, you're, you're looked upon as a hyper-Calvinist. Now, the other question was, why is this view more popular? My opinion is that because it leans more toward our sentiment of we want to say that God saw the race, and I believe it's taught in the scripture, but generally speaking, why do people want to lean toward that is because we believe that God saw the race as in a state of need. They were already fallen, and then out of his grace and mercy, having seen them fallen, that they would fall, determined to choose them out of that. And that seems to sit more with our hearts and our sentiments than to say that God arbitrarily said, I'm going to create a human race, and I'm going to choose these to heaven and consign these to hell, and then I'm going to allow them to fall. And that's not a good theological answer, but to me, that is probably why that other view is more popular. Would you agree with that, Dr. Jones? Okay. The bottom line, though I love theology, and all of us do, um, as I said earlier, we can only go so far in some of these things. But the passage in Romans, that God chose them uh, not having done any good or evil, 
that the purpose of God according to election might stand. That is a strong, strong passage. Yes, that's what I'd like to do. I'm trying to get him to come up. You want to you respond? He is maybe wiser than we are. I think. <laughs> you want to respond to it? Yeah. But you, would you agree that, generally speaking, uh, some people arrive by study at a real conviction, but we want to believe that God considered the race as fallen? Those who, many people who call themselves Calvinists, hold that particular view. Would you agree with that? Okay. Um, I think your answer, as far as I can tell, would be pretty much what I would say that it uh, is somewhat uh, never confessed uh, sentiment, but it's a, it's a softer uh, view. In uh, the first shrift devoted to um, Cornelius Van Til, Gordon Clark, I believe, has a chapter, you may have read it, in which he discusses superlapsarianism, infralapsarianism, gives his argument for superlapsarianism and uh, discusses it uh, in such a way that I think uh, anyone who is able to get hold of that volume devoted to Dr. Van Til would find uh, an answer that would at least enable him to think uh, more carefully into these things that are the secret things. I, I find it very difficult. I think your answer was uh, probably word for word what I would give. It's a, it's a softer view. It is significant that so far as I know, any, there is no uh, ecumenical creed that supports superlapsarianism. All of them are infralapsarianism. And uh, so at least you're in the, the body of the majority of the Calvinists with the infralapsarian viewpoint. That's what it seems to me. Hmm? Well, I'm, I meant uh, probably that's a, that's a bad term to use because that has other connotations, but the historic orthodox creeds that we know are all infralapsarian, like the Westminster Confession, it's infralapsarian. In other words, there's no creed that I know of that is uh, superlapsarian to which a large body of people have uh, given themselves. Maybe you could give me one, but I've seen that in print by others. I'm citing things that I've read. So. Any other questions? I think Dad, well, I want you to address that. He wants you to address that question. Well, I'm still thinking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes, sir. I have been taught, perhaps incorrectly so, I'm not exactly sure, that's why I'm asking the question, that there are three different meanings of the Greek word that have to do with redemption. And I was taught that there is a sense uh, 
in which it would be legitimate and biblical for to say that the Lord redeemed all men, not in the sense that he atoned for all men, that he bought all them and has the ownership rights to all men. And I uh, remember Rolf Barnard in a message that he preached talking about the Lord bought the field that he might gain the treasure. Uh, could you uh, speak to that issue? If there is any sense whatsoever in the Bible in terms of the words that are used, that it could be legitimately said that the Lord actually redeemed all men, but not in the same sense atoned for them. I personally don't think that you can separate uh, the purposes of the persons of the Godhead, and I think those words have to be taken in the context of Scripture. So I don't think that uh, there's a sense uh, that God redeemed the world and didn't atone for the world. However, let me say this. In some of the parables that Christ gave of uh, the hidden treasure, there are two perspectives there. Some want to take the position that the treasure was uh, the church, the elect, and of course others want to say that the treasure was Christ. The point is that the world there was uh, uh, pictured as the field, uh, whatever, whatever parable we're talking about, the treasure was redeemed out of the world. From pa passages like that, I would not say, and this is what Amaraldianism does, is it does make a distinction between redemption in some cases and atonement, saying that it was a sense in which Christ redeemed the world. Now, without getting into too, and I may be missing the mark here, without getting in, uh, off too far, uh, if you should hold a position, let's say, that prior to uh, the populating of the world by human beings, that this was the sphere of operation of Lucifer, who later fell and became Satan, that there was a sense in which Christ became the rightful owner of this sphere in this era as a result of his sacrifice. I, I, I think that perhaps we might could lay some case there. But I personally do not think that Christ redeemed men in the sense of purchasing them and buying them for salvation that uh, any that were not eventually atoned. Myself. Uh, the understanding they had of the word was that there were, that not every sense of the word meant and included the salvation and the setting free. That some just, that's one sense of the word just simply means to buy. That one sense of the word uh, means just to buy, and the other one means to buy and go in and buy, and the other one means to uh, buy and bring out. Now, I could be wrong, I'm, you know, that's what I have an understanding of. Um, In the sense of the God-man, Jesus Christ, being exalted and given authority um, in his humanity, is there any sense in which that ownership was brought back under the proper authority, even in terms of considering him as a Messiah, the God-man, not just the Son of God, who obviously is the possessor of all? And that's, I guess that's the sense that I'm that I'm thinking about. I, uh, I still am leaning in that direction, and I don't, you know, I, I agree with what you're saying up here, but I'm just trying to explain that point, and uh, so. Well, I, I said earlier that we all struggle trying to reconcile God's sovereignty and the responsibility of God's love and particular redemption. Uh, 
and you know, we do believe that Christ is the Lord of all men. Is that not right? He is, he is Lord of all men. All men, however, have not acknowledged him as Lord. Uh, willingly and uh, freely and submissively. And we believe that all of those who actually do are brought to do so by the Spirit of God. And that therefore, Christ died for those persons. In other words, the ones for whom Christ died not only determines God determined through the advocacy and the intercession and the mediation, the substitutionary work of Christ, he not only determined the end, which is our ultimate glorification, but all of the means thereto. And so if he, in a redemptive sense, bringing us to God in salvation, died for us, then we will, in fact, be brought. Dr. Johnson quoted Matthew 1, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. He would like to save his people from their sins. He would do his dead level best to save his people from their sins. He will save them if they will let him, if we cooperate. No, he said he shall save his people from their sins. I think this, again, to me, brother, and I, and I, and I say this sincerely, I think that what, what you're doing is what a lot of us have done. I think we're struggling because we want to see that uh, God, in some sense, loves all men. And I think uh, as him being the creator of all men, uh, I think that he does love all men, but I don't think he redeemed all men myself. That's not my particular struggle. My particular struggle is with the usage of the Greek words. I see. It's not a sentimental type struggle. I just right. understand how the words are legitimate. Yeah. Well, perhaps uh, maybe Fred or Dr. Johnson would like to speak to the use of that word. I think that the use of a word is determined by the context, like anything else. More than one word. Are you talking about the Greek word, that's the term Dr. Johnson, I hate to interrupt you, but they want to get all this on tape. That's why we're asking people to stand up here. Would you mind? <laughs> you tell us where, we, where you don't want it passed out. We're well, also, I'm a little, uh, you know, you have to do something by, by memory, and it's uh, not, you're not always happy with the results. And, uh, but uh, the term is agorazo, if that's, if that's the one term that uh, was in mind. There are some other terms that uh, have to do with that particular viewpoint. But the term in Second Peter 2 and verse 1 is agorazonta, which is, comes from the Greek word agorazo that means to purchase. It is used with reference to believers, and that is its... Uh, it, in other words, it is an effectual term that the purchase is made. It's the term that's used in 1 Corinthians, for example, of the believers that have been bought. Uh, here, of course, the context is the false teachers. And that is uh, one of the problems, because usually when a person raises a subjection, they don't know that fact. And so would you say, then the, the false teachers were really bought then. Well, no, I don't mean the false teachers were bought. Well, that's contrary to its ordinary usage. Um, this word can mean, I think, what you were uh, saying, and that is that in the work of Jesus Christ, 
He did by being the last Adam, not the second Adam, but the last Adam. Uh, second man, but the last Adam, because there's no other Adam representative man but our Lord. He did purchase everything. In other words, everything belongs to him. That's the whole point of the latter chapters of the book of Revelation. It unfolds the ways in which all things are ultimately going to be his. So I don't know whether that bears exactly on the point that he was talking about purchase, but uh, it certainly rules out in the argument, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, as a conclusive proof of the contrary viewpoint, which may have been in the person's mind, I'm not sure. That's all Isn't I know. Isn't the word Lord there a different word, just spontaneous? Yes, it is. It is a different word, and if you want a fuller... Dis the word spontaneous is used when that will move from a it, uh, it, the word uh, would be suitable for that. That is true. And if you want a fuller exposition of that by a man con convinced of its importance, read Gary Long's little book because that's one of the things that he has laid great stress on. A couple of things. I think... Um, as far as Amaralianism is concerned, I think the precise language, and you can probably help me on this because I've not done a lot of reading on it, but my understanding was the precise language he used was that Christ died in order to enact a hypothetical covenant, a covenant that was intended for any and all, uh, into which anyone could opt in if they would. But only the elect would, because only in the elect would the Spirit move them to faith. So he tried to preserve, preserve a, a good Calvinism on that side with a universalism on the other. And the, uh, the difficulty with this is what Dr. Johnson is getting at in the meanings of the words uh, redemption and, and the other terminology employed. You never find it anywhere where it says he died in order to enact a hypothetical anything. He redeemed. He freed us. Um, so far as the lapsarian controversy, I offer this as one who has always been an infralapsarian, but who for some time has been an infralapsarian with a bad conscience. <laughs> um, the most difficult passage, I think, involved in that is the one that Bill mentioned in Romans chapter 9, uh, prepared for destruction. But the, prob the argument that infralapsarians have always used, as I understand it, is that God did his choosing, his electing, presupposing man's fallenness. So the order of the decrees was there was the, uh, well, there was the, uh, the election was made out of fallen humanity. Of course, the superlapsarian, the decree would be made prior to that assumption. The Romans 9 passage, though, is not as answerable, I don't think, to, the, uh, to my satisfaction, at least, for a superlapsarian. Because in verse 22, there is the, David and I were just talking about this back there, there is the presumption of sin, because there is God wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, but it also speaks of him in the very next breath, 
enduring with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And so I'm not sure it's as clear a supralapsarian verse as it should be, and if somebody would like to help me with that, I would thank you very much. Chris's question was, why has it become so, such a more popular view, um, given like a, a, an Ephesians 1 verse or the Romans 9 verse? Uh, the reason is, is because all of the data together, there is more to consider. And like, like Randy's pointing out, the mercy involved in election, um, but enduring with much long suffering their sinfulness. And those kinds of things have the connotations of a presupposed fallenness that would lead to an infralapsarian position. I didn't know until Dr. Johnson mentioned it that the Westminster Confession uh, was infralapsarian. My, un I had thought that it was left open on it because I know there were some superlapsarians, uh, well, I had understood that there were superlapsarians involved, but I, you know, I didn't know that. But it, it, that is the reason for it. The presupposed fallenness is evident, and seems to be evident at least in some of the verses. One observation, unless there are other questions, uh, it may help, it helps me, it may help for us to realize that from the perspective of the being of God, there is no uh, passing of time. There is no God saying, oh, I'll create, and then later he says, and then I'll elect some. It was all one thing. It was one decree one gigantic, altogether encompassing everything decree. And what we've done is we've, in order to try to understand it, we set up straw men, and when we can attack the straw men. You understand what I'm saying? Even with all the respect we have for the great confessions of faith and all of the men who've done a lot of thinking for us and made it easier, I think it, it helps me to realize that God's decree is a unifying thing that was done, uh, actually it's incorrect to even say that it was done in time. It was not done in time. So when you do that, you, you're brought back to the point of the order of those things, really, uh, is not the critical thing. And that's why, uh, as Chris asked earlier, why we lean more toward the infolapsarian view, because the Bible speaks of God as love and mercy, and we want to say then, as, as Randy and uh, Fred and others have pointed out, that God's mercy would lead him to s select us after he considered us as fallen, knowing that we would. I think it should be pointed out to those who may not be as far as we are, that both supra and infralapsarians are five-point calendars. That's true. That's right. Okay. I'm going to just lapse from the subject we've been talking about and uh, just bring up something practical. There's a lot of new people here and a lot of ladies that may not be so theologically astute as many of you may be. Um, recently I had a conversation with an Eastern Orthodox priest, which is my own personal background besides having graduated from a Jesuit college, a Roman Catholic college. When I engaged in conversation with him and others that I have in the past, and maybe you've experienced the same thing. And when you talk about penal substitution, 
To them, that is a novel idea in church history, that the doctrine of propitiation and, and atonement, which we understand in value, is foreign to them. And in my studies, and yours too probably, you have likely been surprised at the absence of this precious doctrine from the pages of church history. And I'm just wondering if you could give some explanation as to whether or not there was this doctrine of atonement advocated prior to the Reformation. Do you know anything of the doctrine of atonement the way we understand it historically in the Protestant uh, Reformation movement? Was this in any way preambled in church history? And if not, why? Does somebody want to comment on that? Well, I, I, would, I would say that what you made a real valid point here in some of my readings I found that Roman Catholicism, because they minimize that, do embrace a lot of the uh, Maraudian perspectives, because he did also. The idea of, and that plays into a lot of questions you've asked today, the idea of a penal substitute or payment in the place and very room instead of, rather than just a general offering made, is certainly downplayed in Amaraldianism. As to why, prior to what, the Reformation? As to prior to that, the only answer I know of is because in the, the progressive formation of understanding where we were, they simply hadn't arrived. And th that's why I said earlier about Calvin's Institutes, it is true that Calvin did not write the Institutes emphasizing every other word, predestination. He was dealing with a historical idea of God's redemptive purpose in Christ. And what has happened uh, many times, people such as Amaraldians and Arminians will go back and quote Calvin and other people. And what we have to realize is that those schools of thought had not been fully developed to the extent that they are now. That's your only way I, why I know it wasn't emphasized. If someone else, David. In the last one. This is just in, in response to what Gary said as far as the understanding of the atonement. And Dr. Johnson, I feel somewhat inept since I feel this should probably be yours. But Anselm would have proposed the penal theory of substitution in cur deus homo, which is Latin for, we would translate, why did God become man or why God man? That was in the 1100s, Anselm of Canterbury, I believe. Uh, it was a, a work that set forth the penal substitution. The common liberal argument against it today is that Anselm was writing against the background of the feudal idea of his own culture which is, I believe, wrong totally. Anselm was writing against the background of Scripture in which we have prepositions like ante and huper. Christ died, huper, us, ante us, that is, on our behalf, in our room instead. And Anselm, in this work, uh, states that clearly. And, uh, of course, we rejoice in the fact that God became man. There is that deus homo. Go ahead. In the Council of Trent itself, the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine, still that doctrine, it is stated that Jesus Christ satisfied the claims uh, against man, for man. And actually the exact expression, the verbal form, satisfaken, is used. So the idea of satisfaction, at least, 
is right there in uh, Rome's documents, which we would explain as in the sense of satisfaction of claims against his politics otherwise. Anselm's claims were, I mean, he was, his tour de Homo was directed primarily against the uh, satisfaction of God's honor. That was the way in which he expressed it. But the idea of satisfaction is, is right there in the documents. So penal satisfaction as a statement of it may be somewhat unique to them, but it's in there. He would also have Augustine, I'm sure. We could throw him in there. All right, it's time for lunch. It's been a good morning. The discussion has been very profitable. Uh, I think sometimes we bring our problems to texts of Scripture, and we try to make every text fit into our scheme. And there's no question that the death of Christ benefits men who are not of the elect. If there had been no proposed atonement, I think that the whole race would have died when Adam sinned. So the whole period of time from then to now when men have a chance to repent, they really owe to the grace of God in the atonement. I think there are many times that people own businesses and they are blessed because they have Christians working for them and God uses the ungodly man to supply the Christian. Well, does that mean that God is showing a special love to the man or is this just a benefit that flows over to him because of his association with the people of God? And I think that same thing is true in the atonement. I think that the real answer to the question as to why there are so few who hold to true historic Calvinism today, I think when you're done, you can, and I don't mean this to be funny, we'll probably laugh, but I don't mean it to be funny. We really live in a very hyper-Arminian generation, and we are mild Calvinists in a hyper-Arminian generation. And because they don't know the difference, in their ignorance, they accuse us of being hyper when they're really the ones that are hyper. They've gone crazy with free will, literally crazy. There are two sins that I think that we have to avoid, and I think the Arminian constantly commits one, and I think Reformed people often fall into the other one. I think when we refuse to discuss a subject that's in the Scripture, we're saying the Holy Ghost made a mistake, he shouldn't have put that in there. So the first sin is that we must never, ever keep back from investigating the truth and discussing the truth. And the other extreme is I think we have to have the humility to stop where Scripture stops. Amen. And Reformed theology has the tendency with its systematic theology and with its logic to open things that God has never opened and has left secret. Amen. And we have to say, I don't know, God hasn't spoken, we'll leave that with him. All right, it's time to go and Reformed theology has the tendency with its systematic theology and with its logic to open things that God has never opened and has left secret. Amen. And we have to say, I don't know, God hasn't spoken, we'll leave that with him. All right, it's time to go.